Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I always knew I wanted to do something to help people lose weight. And I went to medical school and um, I envisioned this type of practice where I help people lose weight, pair them with a psychologist, dietitian. Everyone said, you're crazy, that doesn't exist. Today, Dr. Holly Lofton, a medical weight management specialist, joins me to discuss topics in treating patients with obesity and overweight in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Want to be featured on the podcast? Tell us the story of how you chose your career path to medicine. I've been asking this question to our guests in the Specialist Spotlight series, and folks really seem to enjoy hearing how others got their start. So now it's your turn, and we want to hear from you. Tell us your story in up to four minutes and include your name, degree, specialty, practice setting, and location, and your journey to medicine story. You can submit an audio recording of your story or send it to us in a text format and we'll read it for you. Email us at editorial at pvroundup.com for the chance to have your story heard on a future episode. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and returning to the podcast is Dr. Holly Lofton. Dr. Lofton is the director of the Medical Weight Management Program at NYU Langone. She is also the fellowship director of the Clinical Obesity Medicine Fellowship and the lead of Clinical Assessment and Education Programs, Comprehensive Program on Obesity, NYU Langone Weight Management Program. Dr. Lofton, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So last time we were really focused on COVID. So I have a bunch of other questions to ask that are not COVID related at all. And the first one is, is that I didn't even really ask this the first time we had our podcast together. Can you describe your clinical practice setting and scope of your practice? Absolutely. I'm happy to. I think I'm very blessed that I get to practice solely obesity medicine. So I see about 20 patients a day in conjunction with my nurse practitioners and dietitians solely for weight management. So everyone who's there is coming to lose weight. I do see a small percent of people gaining weight, but most people are losing weight. And um, I take all comers independent of their weight, um, their history, their, their size, of course, their ethnicity. And I do the best I can with their medical history to help them uh, get the best weight loss results. Another question that I always ask that we missed last time because we were in the midst of a pandemic is I'm interested in others' paths to their career in medicine. Can you share yours? The paths to my career in medicine? Yes, absolutely. So I will tell you first that I suffer with childhood obesity and I lost weight uh, in the summertime between sixth and seventh grade. And I felt as if when I came back to school the next year that I was treated as if I was a different person. And so I strive to make people feel the way that I did after that because it was so different socially and very pleasing. So I always knew I wanted to do something to help people lose weight. And I went to medical school and um, I envisioned this type of practice where I help people lose weight, pair them with a psychologist, dietitian. Everyone said, you're crazy. That doesn't exist. And luckily, the field really started to take off right around the time I finished my fellowship. I'm uh, sorry, my residency. And then I did a fellowship in obesity medicine. And that led me to where I am now. Wow. That, that's really that's really great. So there are a couple of recent studies in the obesity world that I sort of want to unpack with you. And the first one is the New England Journal one about semaglutide in adolescence. I'm certain knowing you that you read that paper the day it came off the presses. Thoughts about that? And is it applicable to a broader scope? Absolutely. So I was actually at the conference Obesity Week when the paper was uh, announced and really excited about that data because, again, our adolescents with obesity become adults with obesity. And that has, of course, medical and social impact. And and it, it proves that we can have safe, efficacious options for both adults and adolescents uh, for obesity. And furthermore, 
it gives the audience, which I think is America, the perception that obesity is a disease that needs to be treated medically. And we don't need to wait until someone's 18. We don't need to wait until someone develops medical problems. We really want to address the dysregulation of fat cells, which is what obesity is. Yeah, and it's interesting that I I looked at the side effects because I was thinking, you know, one of the stickling points is going to be side effects. And for the most part, it was cholelithiasis, which, if I recall correctly, is even a side effect for just rapid weight loss anyways, right? I mean, isn't... Exactly. Yeah, so pretty interesting study. I And from, you know, from a standpoint of someone who's background in emergency medicine, I looked through it and I'm like, this is kind of a game changer. It's nice to know that. The next thing I wanted to talk about is why are the debunking of the time-restricted eating um, or the, the couple of papers that came out this year that sort of blew up time-restricted eating, or at least I think people thought they did, but then when you read the papers a little more closely, there's some problems with that. Can you share your perspectives on that? Well, time-restricted eating is a very physiologic pattern because I really believe we're, we have not evolved much from our cavewoman and caveman days. And there were periods of feast and there were periods of famine. So the body is designed to survive famines. Now, when you take that to our current environment where food is plentiful and we can get around without using much energy, we lead to an obesogenic environment. So with, with time-restricted eating, you know, it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. And you have to consider your medical conditions, you know, if you're on different medications such as insulin and things. Uh, but I do find that this is a, a great pattern of eating, especially when people can't be or won't be as active as they need to be. Because it just gives you a time to stop eating quite simply, you know, and, and you, you get that time to process energy that you have taken in. So, you know, I feel if it works with your lifestyle, then it could be a great way to lose and maintain weight. Right. On a personal note, as a retired ER doc, when I was practicing, I didn't eat much breakfast. I mean, you know, if I was working the morning shift, I would have coffee. I would have black Mm -hmm. coffee until like one or so in the afternoon. And then it'd be like, okay, now I need to eat. And then, you know, I'd, I'd have a meal and then I'd have an evening meal. And that was sort of the way my day went. The paper from Lou et al. that I read in April, I was actually a little skeptical of because they allowed patients to basically eat three meals a day within the time-restricted eating. And my sense of it is, is time-restricted eating is literally skipping a meal. Is, is Am I wrong about that? Well, the fasting period is really what gets the benefit of it. So if that period is, let's say, 16 hours, they're not eating, and eight hours, they are eating. The idea is that at some point during that 16 hours, you will start burning some fat. Now, if you had a high-carb day, it might not be until the 14th hour. If you had a low carb day, it might be at the second hour. But it really does help the body utilize fat stores for energy, and that's how it works. So the periods between eating uh, during your feeding period aren't as important as the total fasting period because that's where you really generate the fat loss. Okay. And I'm going to sort of now deviate a little bit because I had a guest on who is a PhD in anthropology. Um, and some of her work uh, is about sort of, you know, the fat fit folks in Northern Finland who are reindeer herders and so forth. And she sort of touched on with one of her um, postdocs about BMI and how sort of flawed BMI is and that how it was designed by one scientist in the 1800s. And then Ansel Keys looked at it again. And it was mostly men and it was mostly, you know, Northern European or or American men, I guess my question is for you as someone who probably gets a lot of questions asked about BMI from patients and so forth, what's your thoughts on BMI and are there better measures for people's weight or health? So first, I'm going to have to go back in here 
the episode about the reindeer hunters. What is it, herders? That sounds Her, amazing. Reindeer herders, doc, Dr. Okabach, okay. Dr. Kara Okabach. She's a uh, wheel. I'll send you the link. It was very interesting. That sounds like a, a very interesting job. Yes. So um, BMI, just for the listeners, it's a height weight ratio. So it's kilograms over meter squared. And yes, Aldolf Quetelet, a biostatistician, designed this as a measure of size when doing some work um, to design cities, my understanding is in about 1860s. So, um, it, you know, it, it's a mathematical equation and it's very convenient to use. And we generate it automatically, our electronic medical records, and we um, base our patient's treatment options on it. But it does have some flaws. So when you look at long-term longitudinal studies looking at BMI, it does not directly correlate with morbidity or mortality, except at extremes. So if someone's a BMI that's what we consider underweight, they may have cancer or have some other you know, eating issue or, or inability to absorb. So that person's at risk of death. And if someone's BMI is over 60, that person's at risk for death. But in between, you, there's no direct correlation. Um, the measures I like to use are uh, really for treatment goals. One, I say health and happiness. You know, if your BMI is 30 and your labs are good and you can move and you can exercise, I say, that's fine. Our goal is just to keep you here and not have you gain weight over time. Um, waist circumference is another measure that we use. A waist circumference over 35 in a female or inches or 40 inches in a male, we consider that to be a risk factor for heart disease. So that is associated with the actual adipose tissue that's in the, the subcutaneous area and can correlate with fat around the organs. And then in my office, we actually do bioelectric impedance weighting. Um, measurements, I guess, to determine someone's fat mass because fat and subcutaneous fat can predict visceral fat and that can be more correlated with health. Right. And actually, Dr. Okabach uses that as well. She says it's very hard to get a PET scanner to Northern Finland. So she has one of those. And I think that there are even just to the lay public scales now that have will do functions like that. Correct. Yes, I have one in my house. OK, amazing. You, you live long enough, you get to see some really <laughs> amazing uh, inventions. So people that I work with and here on the staff of our, our little podcast threw questions at me. So one person wants to know sort of about the keto diet and other things. So I'm just going to open it up to you. And I suspect I know your answer because I know you pretty well, but different diets, thoughts on them. Sure. So keto diet, I want to debunk this myth because keto has a reputation. First of all, it stands for ketogenic diet. So it, it, the idea is that it produces ketones and the perception of it in popular media is that it's a high fat diet, but a ketogenic diet is actually a low carbohydrate diet. So as long as your carbohydrates are under 50 grams a day six, in successive days, you're in a ketogenic diet. It is really publicized as a high-fat diet because, of course, when you drop your carbohydrate intake and also your calorie intake that much, you get hungry. So initially, people do more fat in the diet and increase their fat percentage So because that is very satiating, and that helps you get through the three to five days it takes of low-carb to enter ketosis. So once you've eaten under 50 grams of carbohydrates a day for three to five consecutive days, your body enters ketosis, which means you're no longer using your dietary carbohydrates for energy. You're burning the, well, you've already burned the glycogen that's in your liver, little sugar molecules attached to water molecules, and now you're burning fat primarily for energy. So this is, this is an inefficient way for the body to work, but if you're trying to lose weight, it's ideal. And and people get more energy, you know, you lose a lot of water those first few days. So that's a lot of the, the rapid weight loss that you see. Um, but it is a, a sustainable diet. But of course, you know, at some point you want to eat a carb. So it doesn't have to be a lifestyle. 
could be a way to lose weight. You know, then you safely reintroduce carbohydrates, exercise to keep it off. I, I heard one of the things that either somebody's in a keto diet or something called a bullet coffee. And then I had to look it up and like, that's, that sounds pretty gross. It's like what, adding ghee or butter to coffee? Butter to coffee. I, I was aghast when my patients told me they had that. Don't ever do that again. That does, that is not sound appetizing at all. Um, and so this segues into nicely in, into my next question. So, you know, we have a lot of sort of primary care physicians who, who listen to the podcast and sort of allied healthcare professionals. They're going to have patients that are going to come in to see them and they're going to, they, they aren't going to have an opportunity to see an obesity specialist like you. So what sort of advice would you give your colleagues who are in primary care, you know, who haven't done a fellowship in obesity, who sort of want to help their patients either control their weight or, or lose some weight? The key is this, and this is in the AHA TOS guidelines for obesity management. Any plan that creates a caloric deficit will work. Keeping in mind, you have to continue to calculate what that deficit is. If someone loses weight at 1,400 calories, eventually you go to 1,200, eventually to 1,000 calories. So it's about finding a plan that works for the patient and you as the provider don't have to administer that plan. You can refer to dietitians, they can go to community health-based groups, they can do apps. So, you know, if you're initiating medication, they say use in conjunction with lifestyle behavioral management. That does not have to be you if that's not your forte. So patients can use strategies, um, but really it's creating a caloric deficit. Now then you can pair what might be the best diet for their health with a caloric deficit. For example, a Mediterranean diet has been touted for its decreased risk of MACE events or heart disease. But in the Mediterranean diet study, the Lion Heart study, they gained weight. Their, their cholesterol didn't change. If anything, they went up, yet there was a lower cardiac risk. So if you pair a, that Mediterranean diet for a patient with high cardiac risk and give it a caloric deficit, that will yield benefit for both purposes. Yeah, and I think that there are quite a few apps out there now where you can literally, I have a family member who is using one. She asked me, like, how big of a piece of pizza do I think this is? I'm like, I have no idea. But <laughs> but you have to add that into the app. Um, and I think there's a lot of good feedback from that, too, because it's real time. You know, it sort of has this scale of how many calories you have left in a day and so forth. And we know this from other medical apps. That kind of feedback actually probably helps motivate patients, correct? It does. And it just makes you take a step extra between thinking about the food and eating the food. And I think, you know, it makes it more mindful for the patient. You know, they really want to write that down. They ate four Twinkies, right. you know, I'll just stop at one. And, and then you can see the numbers adding up. You know, oh, goodness, it's lunch and I'm running out of calories for the day. So it, it makes it much more of a mindful and purposeful activity of eating because we do this mindlessly many times. Right. And then the other thing, and I, I said I wasn't going to talk about COVID, but now if this is post-COVID, is that I think a lot of folks realized, you know, when the lockdown eased up a little bit, but people weren't allowed to get together, that there was still a way of getting outside and walking. And I don't know if you've seen with your patient population, but where I live, there are a lot more people walking, I think, than there used to be because people realized, holy cow, I can't stay cooped up the way I was before. I don't know if you've seen that in your practice along with your patients. I see different activity levels on the spectrum. Some patients are still really afraid to get out. I've seen them virtually for two years, and I encourage them to please come into the office. A lot of people still don't want to go to a formal gym, um, but many have segued into making their own gym at home. You know, we have tiny New York apartments around here, so they get a mat so they don't disturb the neighbors, and they jump up and down. Um, I definitely see a lot of walking. It, also, to minimize using public transit, people are doing more walking and um and, you know, when the, when the weather is good, people are just out and about doing everything they can because they realize how much they uh, had taken advantage or, or have forgot about 
the importance of being outside doing activity. Absolutely. I mean, I think that when, when you're told you have to stay in the house, all of a sudden you're like, wow, wait a minute, I really miss being out in some fresh air. Yes. Um, so my last question, to be respectful of your time, is I think when you and I first met, we were sort of at the era of, oh, these are some, we have some really powerful drugs now to help with obesity, you know, at the very beginning of that. And now I want you to sort of look forward in five years. Obviously, you've been to the obesity conference, and I know that you pay close attention to this. What are we looking at for sort of the next wave of things to help folks with obesity and overweight? It's very exciting. I can tell you this. This is an exciting time to be an obesity medicine specialist. So we have in the pipeline terzepatide for obesity. It's now approved for diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, but the weight loss is staggering. So prior to terzepatide, the highest weight loss result for any of the FDA-approved medications, 18%, which is not bad at all. Keep in mind, just to give us a perspective, we see about 20% weight loss with the lap band, okay? So 18% with semaglutide. Terzepatide is getting about 23% um, weight loss. And the good thing is most people respond to it. So there's always a small number of non-responders, but with terzepatide, only about 4% of people did not respond by getting at least 5% weight. So that means it will work for most Americans. Only 4% it won't. Now, if we look down the pipeline, there's also some combination medications. So they're looking at combining some maglutide with an amylin analog called cagrilantide, which, again, combining medications really helps get best weight loss because the body is very dynamic. If you turn off one pathway, it turns on another pathway to make you gain weight. So when you put two meds together, you get excellent results. So uh, the results of that, I don't yet know what the weight loss is with semaglutide, with cagrilantide, but I've heard it's very impressive, mirroring bariatric surgeries, more in the 30% range. And we also have um, the triple G agonist, so a GIP, GLP, and glucagon agonism. This actually yields weight loss that looks like bariatric surgery in the gastric bypass range, about 40%. And so these studies were done in mice. And it's interesting, I looked at the graph, this is amazing. Not only did the mice lose 40% of their weight, but they did it in 12 days. You know, it's like, it's like these poor mice must be having, what's happening to me? Right. So it won't be that fast in humans, but those are some of the things in the pipeline that look very promising. And I, I, I just wanted to point out that sort of dynamic point because I, I've been talking to, you know, this is the conversations that I've been having with clinicians like yourself and some of the basic scientists are, you know, the discussion that, yeah, humans, we are the process of evolution of people who basically survive famine. So to your point, those of us who are still here and, and I've a, I'm of Irish ancestry. So uh, the people that are in my family are left are the ones who survived the potato famine. So, you know, calories, the body, I think from what I'm hearing you say dynamically, when the calories are available, the body's like, let's get them. And so you have to sort of saying this correctly, we have to place sort of whack-a-mole with the, the pathways. That's why the 3G pathway seems to be working so well, right? Exactly. Because these meds are different in that they work on appetite, but more so on metabolizing fat in a way we're maintaining our muscle mass. And if you're losing fat cells and maintaining muscle mass, your metabolism switches to be very fast. And that's another reason the weight loss is so impressive. That's amazing. You know, we are definitely going to reach out to you when these drugs get a little bit closer so you can talk about the data and so forth. But this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you. Have a good one. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. 
You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Dr. Holly Lofton, and to Sean Mullen, Norm Dion, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.